Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest today is Erica Carlson, director of ISC Academy, which is part of Leadership Development International, an organization that runs seven schools in China and the UAE and also offers leadership training and development. Erica was head of the Wuhan Yangtze International School for four years and a member of staff there for nine. Her dissertation, pre-COVID, was on how to better integrate digital learning, a dissertation that was both very useful and not when the pandemic actually hit. She's now heading up an all online school called the ISC Academy for Chinese nationals living abroad. The model is also based around a fairly high touch relational dynamic between the students and the teachers and their families. And maybe one of the uniquenesses of living and working in an international community is the group is pretty tight. Everyone's left their passport countries. They're looking for friends. They're looking for community. Usually people move to the city and they don't even know where to go to get groceries. Erica went to China on a whim and stayed, ultimately immersing herself in creating an international school for expat children, which eventually attracted many Chinese families as well. Her latest venture, the All Digital School, is primarily for Chinese nationals abroad, and it aims to bring the best of social and emotional learning and a deep student-teacher relationship online, a challenge all of us know is quite significant. Eric and I talk about what digital learning can and can't do, what it's like to live and work in education in China, and what's driving the most recent crackdown in the education sector in China. Erica Carlson, thanks for being with us. A pleasure. Thanks, Jenny. You were at the Wuhan Yangtze International School since 2012 and head of school from 2017 until very recently. What brought you to China in the first place? So I had a friend that was teaching art in a sister school in Qingdao, and she essentially told me, you should come to China. You can stay on my couch. We'll go see the Great Wall. It'll be great. Come for 10 days. And that seemed like a good deal. Then she called back and said, well, actually, you have a degree to teach English and work with English language learners. You should probably come and stay for two years. I mean, anyone can do anything for two years. And that also seemed convincing. She's known me since I was three. And anytime a good friend like that says you should do something, you take it seriously. So I thought, sure, I'll sign a two-year contract to teach English and just loved it. I loved the international community. I loved what we had a chance to do because there wasn't a lot of bureaucracy. We could be quite creative in our curriculum building. There wasn't a lot of -of out-of-the-box curriculum that worked for us. So we needed to develop new methods and materials anyways. And I just kept signing contracts, went into administration, and I'm still here. What year did you arrive? 2007. 2007. Oh my gosh. Yeah. As a first year English teacher, actually. You just alluded to this, but tell me a little bit about how the school changed in that time. When I came, we had 80, 82, 85 students somewhere in that ballpark. The school had started as a homeschool co-op out of seven kids. It was a couple of families that said, hey, we're here doing business in the city and we don't have a school. We should work together. And it kind of grew out of that. So I was actually the first English teacher that they had hired and since then grew in, in numbers and nationalities. And at the point where I left head of school, we had just over 30 different nationalities and territories represented. And certainly recently, and certainly since the pandemic, the demographics have changed a lot to be a lot more Chinese. A lot of the foreign families left with 
evacuation flights and quarantines, and then it was hard for them to get back into China. And also over the last probably 15, 20 years with the rising middle class in China and education being a high value culturally, there were many Chinese families that were interested in international education, interested in an alternative to the Gaokao, uh, the standardized tests that would get students into secondary school and graduate school. So there were a lot of families that were interested in the kind of education we had to offer and hoped to go abroad. And yeah, that pretty much brings brings the school to this point. In sort of your last pre-COVID year, what was the Chinese rest of the world balance? Our largest group was South Korean, followed by North American and, and Chinese or about the same at that time. We had worked with a lot of business families and consulate families but many of the foreigners left and still haven't returned. I think for many of us, when we think of a Chinese system, we think of rigor, intensity, perhaps rightly or wrongly, kind of a, a rote learning approach. What was your school's approach? Our school is an American international school, so follows American curriculum, American standards. The standards that we follow were originally developed for military academies overseas and then had taken those and contextualized them to meet the needs of our students and the main difference that people will say when they walk in our doors, if, if they're familiar with American schools, they'll say, oh, this feels like an American school in terms of the student work that's up on the walls, the colors of the walls, just the way the classroom design is laid out, uh, maybe to promote student grouping, pods, you know, different individual spaces. It's, it's less of the, the teacher would deliver the content to the students and then they would work on it individually. The model is also based around a fairly high-touch relational dynamic between the, the students and the teachers and their families. And maybe one of the uniquenesses of living and working in an international community is the group is pretty tight. Everyone's left their passport countries. They're looking for friends. They're looking for community. Usually people move to the city and they don't even know where to go to get groceries. So that's quite different from if you're in your own passport country, you just need to send your kids to school and that's it. So we, we really found that that was an opportunity to look at community quite differently, to look at parent engagement and what that means for student well-being and really be able to present a different type of education that really, when we say we're holistic and we care about students, mind, body, spirit, we can actually live what that looks like in a way that was quite different from many of the local public schools. Give me a sense as to the receptivity of the Chinese families to this approach. Many of the Chinese families have had experiences living and working internationally. So perhaps they lived in Canada, they lived in the UK. So they, they're familiar with a different system and they were looking to continue in an English speaking environment. They were looking for an international school. So for them, it was, oh, this feels like what we had in Canada and we hope to go back in two years. So this is a good fit for us. For others, I think they sometimes don't know when they bring their students to an international school, the main hope is that they can learn English and love that they'll be cared for by their teachers as well. It won't just be about reading, writing, arithmetic. It will be about the whole person. And they really see that. They really see the love and kind of the community that we're established. And they, they like being in that environment. But they probably don't always think about the gravity of that decision that they make when their child is six or seven, because it usually will mean that the child cannot go back into the Chinese system because they've been doing all their academic work in English. And while they still can 
usually speak and listen and have some reading and writing skills in Chinese, it's definitely not at the level of the local curriculum. And so that's something at times families, even as we talk about it, but they'll discover that almost later, almost too late and have this, oh, aha moment. We weren't sure we were ready for that commitment or we're looking for for other options. And even as we've we've worked in some cases to try to partner with some of the local schools to provide an international division or uh, some supplemental courses for them. And that's one thing that we'll commonly talk about when the families will say, oh, well, we'd like our child to have two diplomas, one from China and one from the US. And so that essentially means double the work as right now is very little that's easy to just cross over or one course could count in both systems because both systems are so dramatically different in their approach. But it has been an interesting attempt to put the systems together to give families some more options. Where was Wuhan International School on technology and digital pre-COVID? And then where did COVID get it? We knew as we're looking at the future changes in the job market, even what universities were requiring, the students that got into the top-notch schools, some of the skills that they were taking with them, that technology was certainly something that we needed students to address. We needed to have courses that developed skills in those areas. And personally, I was seeing some of the challenges that we were facing, and this was when I was a principal and head of school role, but had seen the challenges of hiring foreign teachers. This was pre-pandemic. It would take, you know, four to six months sometimes to get a a teacher onboarded from the point when we would first meet to when he or she would actually arrive in country. And the size of our school, we were right around 300 students, made it difficult to hire specialist teachers in every area. And families wanted more, more options, more flexibility, especially at the high school level. So it seemed that if we embraced a hybrid model and had teachers that were available online and we still offered core classes face-to-face wherever we could, but we could provide a much broader opportunity for learning and we were coming to see that really students needed the skills that were quite different skills learning face-to-face versus learning online in terms of the kind of independence that online learning requires the kind of initiative, or even just a different way of interacting with technology as part of the teacher-student relationship that a face-to-face environment doesn't require in the same way. So we actually made the adjustment and made one online course part of the graduation requirements for finishing at the school pre-COVID. I also noticed that it seemed like there was a huge change in the number of technology companies that had been reaching out to us and had designed a variety of apps and tools. Some were connected to curriculum that we had purchased, but a lot were not. It was just, you know, free trial for this, try this. And teachers were very interested in these tools, but it was sort of chaotic in how we were using them. It was not aligned. It wasn't connected. Kids had all kinds of logins for different tools. And it was unclear, is this tool actually beneficial for learning or a worst case scenario actually punitive for their learning. So from there, I decided to do my doctoral research in educational technologies and learning analytics to better understand what are the tools that our teachers are already using in our district and how are they using them in hopes to design a kind of framework or map for how we could make better decisions around what kinds of technologies we adopted 
and in what grade levels or in what areas in the learning process we would insert that tool. So I imagine the pandemic tested that map a little bit. <laughs> Did the map get you where you needed to go? Right. So I had just finished interviewing right when we went into the pandemic. So on one hand, I guess it was good to have months to be stuck at home to, to finish the analysis. But we had really a matter of days to make that change being in Wuhan into online learning. And we had families that were located around the world because it was Chinese New Year holiday and spouses were separated, children and parents were separated. So it became very quickly, yes, we need to offer courses online, but we also quickly need to offer student services online as well and just figure out how do we take care of people in some way to provide stability, to provide encouragement and care for them as they're in these moments of chaos and trying to figure out, you know, crisis mode, how do we get to a safe place? And then we can think more about how do we do school. And had you anticipated as part of your research that student services piece? No, it wasn't at all. It was really very much focused on the academic side at first, how to introduce a topic to help students engage and collaborate better, to reflect better. So it was a whole whole different understanding of, yeah, how do we connect with families and, and listen well. And if a student is not showing up, that looks very different than if they just didn't come to school that day. How did the reality, which then tested your kind of academic findings, work out? I think the main thing that gave me perhaps courage during that time was how inspired I was by the teachers and the way that they described the tools that they were using, how they were experimenting with different things, what was working, what was not working for them just to see their creative spirit. And all along, teacher after teacher in the research process would describe why they were doing it so that they could better meet the needs of those kids. So the fact that I knew we have these teachers going into this crisis, and yes, maybe the teachers may be in crisis modes themselves, and so they may not be able to bring their best to the students, but I know that they'll be ready in the same way that they trialed out a new tool six months ago under a different set of conditions they would be ready to try new things now. And so we just kind of jumped into it. And there were some of the tools that we were able to use, but it was a lot of new, a lot of, all right, let's try this experiment and see if it works. Let's try to see if we can connect with the families this way. And then we just would have those quick adjustments. All of that preparation has led you to the creation of an all online school. So tell us about the ISC. What is it and who will it serve? Yeah, so ISC Academy was started last school year out of a COVID response program for our district. So to help serve all of those families that were stuck outside China or the United Arab Emirates, where we have another one of our schools and needed online for more than just a couple of weeks. And the, the few weeks then stretched into months, which now has stretched into years. And some of the students and their families are, are still overseas and still learning with us online. And then we had a separate program There was a Chinese program that was started to help work with some of the families that we knew, some of our company partners in our network that had left China, and many of them had followed the Belt and Road movement in China, uh, that initiative, and or had been with companies that we had worked with in the past, and they found themselves in places where either they didn't have strong international school options or the local school options did not provide the Chinese language and culture piece that was so important to them. And so while they you know, took their families to follow certain jobs, but they, they still missed some connection to the homeland, 
So we would call up companies and say, all right, well, could we continue to provide education for your children? And in some cases, these were families that have worked with us in China. So they already knew our schools and they were happy to have that consistency. So then ISC Academy this year merged both of the English, the COVID response program and this Chinese program together into one school. And we offer a full-time program, uh, kindergarten to grade eight, uh, Chinese classes, English language support classes, and also advanced placement courses through the College Board. And so is the primary audience Chinese expats? Primarily right now, yes. And then we have smattering of usually staff families that are overseas or a few others. Yes, but probably 95% of the students are Chinese. And just tell us a little bit about the Belt and Road Initiative and I guess these migration patterns, which are very interesting. So I think this was actually started back in 2013 was when an initial vision to be able to have more infrastructure projects and for China to move into the Middle East, into India, different countries in Africa and focus on technology and infrastructure. And so then along with that, also some changing regulatory environments for foreign companies in China, which then ended up moving a number of the companies that we partner with, or just some of the families that had attended our schools to other countries. And then they were, they were looking for options. And in many cases, they weren't always sent to tier one cities. I mean, cities like you know Dubai would have plenty of international schools, but they were in areas that were a bit more remote. And so then they were looking for, well, now, now what do we do with, with our kids? And we don't know, you know maybe how long we would be here during this project or one project led into another one. So it really provided kind of a surprise to us to say, oh, well, there are families that would benefit from the kind of international education that we offer. And we might be uniquely equipped to work with them because of the international schools that we already have in China. And so are you teaching in Mandarin or are you teaching in English? Both. Okay. So would it be considered a bilingual program? Right now, the Chinese classes are the only ones in Chinese. So it probably will be a bilingual program, but maybe not yet. And how many students do you have now? We have just around 80 students in the full-time or Chinese or English language support. And then we have 171 students taking AP courses. So I think that was kind of an aside that wasn't necessarily what we aimed for, that we would have all of these students in these AP classes. But it turned out that as we look at trying to serve the the school district, and we have uh, six schools in China and one in the United Arab Emirates, that they had the same challenges that our school in Wuhan had, where students are wanting to take a variety of different courses, but they don't always have the staff on the ground, or they wouldn't hire a full-time person just to teach one specific advanced placement course. So instead of outsourcing that, we could offer it in-house. How many different AP courses do you offer? We have 11 different ones right now. So that expanded pretty quickly. And that was just this year. It was even just a couple of weeks before school that we get a call from our principal. Hey, could we offer this class? But it turned out, of course, since we're online, that it's a lot easier and faster to hire a teacher who's willing to pick up a course in their evening time, you know, they don't have to relocate countries, they don't have to quit jobs or deal with PU letters and visa processes. So that that seems to be working well and will probably help fund some of the other programs that we're looking to start in other areas. The things you can do when you're online in some ways seem endless, but what are some of the challenges? One of our biggest challenges right now is the language barrier. 
because we're working with Chinese families and the students don't have strong English. And in most cases, neither do their parents. So in the way that a parent might just drop their child off at school in a face-to-face environment, and if the child doesn't understand, you just take the child by the hand and lead them around, introduce them to some friends, and it's okay. But in an online environment, there aren't the same kind of supports. And there is a lot more that the family needs to, in some ways, figure out on their own in terms of how do I log into this call? How do I access course materials? How do I submit the homework? If it's all in English. So we're finding that the success that we're seeing in the Chinese program is not quite the same in the English program yet, even though the courses are actually outlined the same way in our in our management system. But for reasons that we're exploring, the families aren't engaging with the content in the same way. And probably another challenge is the challenge of remote teams and having staff all over the world and teachers that can't always meet one another. And we've, yeah, working to address all of these, but it definitely seems that the pace in which the school could grow, or maybe my expectation on how quickly we would develop, we have to slow things way down. And being new to the program this year, having not met a lot of the teachers and a lot of the the families in terms of, you know, the quick conversations we might have about a project that you can do when you see people regularly. And this is coming from a team that was pretty tight. You know, we'd have dinners at each other's houses. We'd see each other on weekends to working with a team that has never met in person. That felt quite distinctly different and more difficult in terms of how do we establish that trust so that we can then have the difficult conversations when we need to. And it will just take more time, I think, than I was expecting. We change tack, slower pace, and design some experiments to try to close that language gap as well. So it, it sounds to me like one of the biggest challenges you're facing, which I believe is universal to business and education, is how you create community online. And I'm yes. curious what you think you've found so far. Like, what are your hacks? I mean, I don't know that there's a silver bullet, right? But like, you know, the way to do it. But we're experimenting with looking at the key connection points, especially in the live calls. And for example, having a teaching assistant or a bilingual support person who can join the the class at the end of the class to listen in, to get a, a sense of how are the students engaging with the content and the teacher that day, and then be available for 30 minutes after the call or after the official course is finished as a kind of workshop study hall to specifically work with the students and their parents about how do you submit assignments? Okay, now we can we can do some translation as needed, but to have a quick touch point right there that might be difficult for the, the English-speaking teacher to do with the families. So we'll see how well that works. Another thing that we're experimenting with is different messaging systems. And our learning management system mainly just doesn't have a system that our Chinese families are used to working with. And many of them are used to using WeChat, but WeChat doesn't always meet our needs because of some of the security features. We wouldn't want to talk about students' grades or reporting or anything like that, but it works for quick conversations. However, many of our teachers in North America don't have access to WeChat. There's another tool called DingTalk that we're experimenting with that's also used quite regularly in the Chinese public schools. And so some of it is we're trying to balance what is going to communicate in a way that our current families, who are mostly Chinese, can understand. 
while also keeping the long-term vision of the program that we want to build in mind, that we hope that it will be more international than it is now, and we'll have to consider language barriers that's not just Chinese and English, but a variety of other language barriers as well. And so how can we bring students from a variety of cultures together online? We're trying to maybe have a study hall as well that students could be assigned to where they could get some learning support. So far, none of the students have have taken us up on that. Uh, So it's a lot of conversation about what is the actual message? Can they read the message? And then the layers of communication, how would they interpret this message based upon the cultural background or what they're expecting school to look like? So that is all very, very interesting to see. It's very different than a face-to-face school. And I think in part that is what I was hoping to experiment with in moving to this role. We haven't figured it all out yet, for sure. You said earlier on that you have this holistic approach. When I think of holistic, I think of sort of sports and drama and art and co-curriculars. Does all of that stuff happen online? And do you feel it's as effective online as it would be in person? We haven't built all those areas yet, but I think we believe that it all can happen online. And not in the same way, perhaps, but in a way that could be meaningful in its own way. So one area that we have explored so far is around this area of community and celebration and trying to bring the families into the educational experience. And in many ways, they have to be more involved, especially with the young ones, because they have to help their kids sign on. In some cases, they're in the next room and they can listen in on the call. They can observe what the teacher's doing. But in terms of looking at ways that some of the programming can actually be for them too. So in September, we had a mid-autumn festival celebration. And that again, fit nicely since it's a Chinese holiday on September 21. And since most of our families are Chinese and we had a a lower elementary focused program and an upper elementary focused program. And the teachers had prepared a traditional song and the students had sent in videos and photos of them pointing to the moon. And the moon is a, a big deal at this time, kind of this idea that even though we're separated by distance, you know, we can look at the same moon. And so that connects us. And it seems in this case, it was quite effective for many of the families because they are living outside China. And this isn't a holiday that they necessarily have the opportunity to celebrate in the same way where they're living, but it reminds them of home and it gives them that opportunity to connect with other families, even if maybe they're the only family or there's only a few families that are working in their area you know, just kind of that warmth of we're connected to a bigger community that's, you know, trying to encourage, trying to send blessing. And maybe from that, they would be able to connect more often as needed. So kind of developing some friendships along the way, which maybe isn't strictly academic, but still part of, you know, what it means to be in a learning process to be connected with one another. When you were building a school for sort of expats in China and trying to replicate that American school experience, I imagine that sort of sports and drama and art was really important because that is a sort of, you know, the approach. Now that you're pivoting and doing more towards Chinese families, are those expectations there for all of those things? We do have art and PE as part of our program, and we've had to think differently about how to run those courses but did want to include a variety of classes. And I think in time, we would hope to develop further. And there are different international school groups that we're a part of that are exploring virtual art galleries and fairs or music concerts that students can share virtually. We do offer these classes, but 
probably it's through our celebrations that like the festival that I described that is probably the biggest connection and students do have opportunities to perform. There was one student that shared a song with her dad, you know, so that was quite sweet. So I, I, I hope in time that we will be able to develop more and probably looking at a model that considers the value of connecting with people that are in different time zones, different places, maybe different backgrounds as well. And also connecting with your neighbors that have the closest proximity to you, that we're never, of course, separated from the communities that are right around us. And that perhaps can be a pitfall of technology that we should be aware of is the challenge of isolation or the challenge of the online community replacing the face-to-face community. And we you know, have to watch out for that. For example, one student that I had talked to last week was saying that she used to love seeing her friends and she used to love going out with them on weekends But now she'll talk to people online, but she doesn't really like seeing people. So that was a bit of a red flag of like, ooh, yeah, we might need to talk about that more. And as we look at how the curriculum is designed, can we always have an application piece or an action piece that involves the students doing something in their community, uh, however they're able to? And certainly with the ongoing pandemic, some students would have more options than others in terms of can they go out and do a skateboarding class or get involved with the park district or or do something like that, but trying to look for those creative options so that they can connect locally as well. We're all watching sort of this incredible crackdown on the private tutoring market. It's been banned for core curriculum. Some for-profit ed tech companies are being forced to turn into nonprofits. I think it's strange for at least a Western audience that a national government would clamp down on what seems like almost national champions. What's your kind of interpretation as to what's going on and how does it affect your markets? Yeah, so it was interesting to see this new change in July and It seemed to be that a lot of the changes were driven by equity. The national government had said that we want to focus on the quality of our schools and the quality of the students that we're producing, whereas before they were more focused on capacity. Do we have the ability to serve all of the students that we have? And if that means partnering with private groups, great. But now they they really want the students to focus on what they're getting during the day and not necessarily have to go to after school and weekend tutoring programs. So they were promoting balance and even to say that all children shouldn't have to need after-school tutoring because it was really becoming a bit of a cultural mindset that if you weren't sending your child to an after-school tutoring program, then you weren't keeping up with your neighbor. You know, you needed to do more and more and more. And that was fueling some challenges within schools. It was a very pressurized environment. So I think in part, there was a recognition of some of these things. I think it's also interesting to watch how China's responding with how they're seeing the one-child policy play out. Now there's the two, then three-child policy, and actually now a lot of promotion for families to have children. Some companies are paying families to be off work. The maternity policy is quite generous. So I wonder how much that has to do with it as well as families are looking at the cost of having children and the cost of educating these children, that if there are ways that the national government can say, it is affordable to have children. There are supports available. Please have more children. That the declining birth rate may have something to do with this. And the third thing maybe because a lot of these tutoring companies were funded by international companies, global markets, it was a huge investment space. So being able to control more of what is the curriculum and the messaging that the children are getting and also, I'm sure, wanting to have more of the investment be 
localized and come from domestic sources instead of so much that was international and probably regulated more in many ways. Um, a lot of the teachers weren't necessarily credential. There wasn't a lot of standard practice for what kind of tutoring they would receive. Foreign teachers now have to be on the mainland. Is that right? Correct. Yes. You have AP teachers teaching. So how does that work? The majority of our students are not in the mainland and we are also an accredited school. So right now with, with any new implementation of policy, it, it's kind of beginning stages or the first groups that are clearly out of policy line would be affected but then we'll probably expect to see sort of a cascading regulatory environment coming city by city and district by district, according to interpretations of the local leaders. So it's, it certainly could affect us. And we're taking a look at what are some of the nuances in the policy or other ways that we might make adjustments for the families that, that we're working with. But I'm still hopeful that because we're accredited and because we're still an expatriate children's school, and all of the students within our international schools have to have foreign passports. So at least for now, the regulation seems to be applied to Chinese passport holders in China. We're reading much more about sort of curriculum requirements and more nationalism in the curriculum and more limitations around what can and can't be taught. Has that affected schools like the one you were heading? Has that actually directly impacted you? And will it in the ISC model? Some of this we'll have to wait and see. We've seen more inspections, more interaction with local government that want to see the curriculum that we're using, how we're instructing the students. In the past, depending upon the city or what was happening in the city, there was a lot of freedom to navigate as we wanted. So some of that we haven't necessarily seen a change yet, but we are thinking that it's possible that the definition of you know, what does a Chinese student mean that could change and that would have a huge impact on all expat children's schools in, in China. So there are schools that are currently running a model where they're allowed to work with Chinese passport holders, and then they also have an international division so foreigners can attend also. So some of that has to do with the type of license that the school holds and a variety of different avenues in terms of the scope of their business, essentially. So that might be something that we would need to, to look into more specifically. But I guess questions would remain in terms of using the curriculum that we have is all mainly international curriculum. So we may, if we then did work with Chinese local passport holders, would have to make some significant revisions to the curriculum as well. So all a, a very quickly changing season here, for sure. You had talked about really wanting to focus on building not just cross-cultural, but more kind of understanding of other. How are you doing that at ISC Academy? Right now, a lot of it is looking to the future and, and partnerships of other groups that maybe have similar ideas. And right now, since the majority of our students are Chinese, it's connections perhaps between countries and it's a refreshment for them to find people that do speak the same language and look like them and are from their backgrounds because there might not be huge numbers of Chinese children in their area. But we would hope then, as we look at the kinds of programs that we would build into the future, to look at students that are located in other areas of the world and how we would then build curriculum, maybe the English curriculum, uh, social science curriculum that would help students and promote more dialogue, more discussion, maybe around some topics that are often perhaps misunderstood. But even now during our, we have 30 minutes at the start of the day for our homeroom time. And that time, we'll try to ask students 
key questions about you know, reflections on what they're learning and how they're engaged with, with others that are in their community. But a lot of this is ongoing. We're building as we go, as we see where are the students, what, what is their context, to what extent are they interacting with people in, in their local neighborhood or just online? And what extent are they still connected with perhaps the friends that they had in the international schools or with anyone else? And then we would probably build based upon that information that we're gathering about the students. Quick lightning round. What is your favorite book about learning? Visible Learning. By John Hattie. Yes. (laughs) And what is your favorite book not about learning? I love Dostoevsky's work because he gets into how we think and how how we are. It can be dark, but I think fascinating. And what are you binge watching? <laughs> I'm slow. The Crown, which I realize everyone has finished watching, but I, I was not watching so much TV. People said, you must watch this. Perfect. Erica, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you, Jenny, for the opportunity. To say the shift to teaching and learning has been complicated during COVID is an understatement of epic proportions. But to hear about doing that for an international community with over 100 nationalities represented in China, a country that is difficult to navigate for business, let alone schools, was fascinating. I was struck by Erica's decision to pivot to all online and to try to build a school that puts identity and relationships at its core, but aspires to deliver that online. It seems a tall task, but one we need to watch if we care about access and equity. I was also interested in hearing Erica's take on the government crackdown on EdTech. It's been remarkable to see a government go after some of its corporate darlings and destroy massive market value. The cynic in me assumed it was a power play. The government had to show it was more powerful than its massive tech sector. But Erica suggested it went deeper than that. It was a play for equity as well, a shift from caring about access to school to quality of schooling and wanting students to be able to get what they need without after-school tutoring. As Erica points out, if the government wants more people to have more babies, and they do, they need to make the cost of children and educating them cheaper. And I agree with her point that the government probably wants international players out and local players in to control the messaging, but also the returns. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.